Titus chapter 2. I'd like to talk to you today about a sensitive topic, but very important topic in our Christian lives. I want to talk to you about what it means to be taught by grace. Titus chapter 2. My college roommate served for many years on an atoll, an island in the Pacific. Often in serving on that island, he'd talk about the culture that he faced off with there, a culture of immorality, a culture of lying, deceit, surrounded by untruth, asking the question every day as a missionary, can such a culture be changed? And the answer to that question is absolutely. After all, Titus was left on the Isle of Crete. He was left to set in order the things in the churches that needed to be addressed so that the churches there in that culture that was so well known that its own poets would talk about the Cretans always being liars and slow bellies, the church was placed there as a light in a dark place to see the culture changed. And that's the situation in which all of us find ourselves who are involved in the ministry and all of us who have a hope in the Lord that we're not simply here to endure our time. We're here to be used to the Lord as light and salt in a dark place. And God would have you and God would have me to be involved in actually seeing a culture changed. Well, how does that occur? We've opened our Bibles to Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. The Word of God begins in verse 11 by saying, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us, that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. Years ago, I was shopping at a home improvement store, and while I was walking through the aisles of this large store, I saw a lady and her daughter from our church, and I greeted them there. After the fact, when I went to church on Sunday, the lady came to me, and she uh, smiled, and she said, Pastor Phelps, i got to tell you this. We saw you over there at the store the other day, and she said, we got in the car, and my daughter said, Mom? I didn't know Pastor Phelps wore blue jeans. That little girl was shocked by my appearance in that store that day. She understood something that has been forgotten by many people far older and far more learned than she. She understood that position in ministry brings an expectation of conduct. Position in ministry brings an expectation of conduct. We're living in a world filled with evangelicals today who have forgotten that concept. They've accepted the fact of salvation as God's gift to them, and they've moved on in life, if you will, without any obligations, without any considerations. That position in ministry brings an expectation with regard to our conduct. Eternal life is gladly proclaimed, but separation from sin, not so much. Obligations, when it comes to separation from the world, seldom considered. In his book, Set Apart, Calling a Worldly Church to a Godly Life, R. Kent Hughes makes the following observation. Listen carefully. 
Our Kent Hughes would not be exactly in the camp that we represent here this morning. Our Kent Hughes was the pastor of the campus church in Wheaton, Illinois for many years. Now speaks an evangelical from broad evangelicalism in his book, Set Apart Calling a Worldly Church to a Godly Life. And he says, there's a great disconnect between on the one hand what Christians believe and assimilate from sermons and Christian sources and how on the other hand they actually live. The contemporary evangelical church is not lacking for moral and spiritual instruction. It's lacking in its ability to remain uncontaminated by Christian unchristian thinking and the morality of contemporary culture. In contemporary evangelicalism, there's become a deficiency of, spirit, of cultural awareness and a resulting lack of discernment regarding how the world has overwhelmed the thinking and the behavior of Christians. Whether you're aware of it or not, there are loud voices who lead Christian libertarian parades and they fly under the banner of evangelicalism and they say, we are following after the grace of God that God has given to us. Don't be so uptight about standards and about separation. Let's just enjoy the grace that God has given to us. And grace is a big theme in the Word of God. In fact, it's a worthy theme for us to preach. As you study God's Word, you discover, of course, that we're saved by grace. For by grace are you saved through faith. As you study the New Testament, you discover that we're sanctified by grace. In 2 Peter 3 and verse 8, we are told to grow in grace and in knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We make our supplication or we pray by grace. Hebrews 4 and verse 16, we come boldly before the throne of grace. We sing by grace. Colossians 3 and verse 16 reminds us we're to sing with grace in our hearts unto the Lord. We're to speak with grace. Colossians 4 and verse 6, let your speech always be with grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor given to us. And it affects every part of our Christian experience and every part of our Christian lives. But let me say something, young people, listen carefully. We're living in a world of Christians today who have cheapened grace. They have received the grace of God and they've forgotten that with God's grace comes expectations along the way. They want grace to cover all, and yet they don't want grace to change them at all. There is grace that is rife with worldliness. There are those who say, well, grace allows me to live any way I want to. So pay particular attention today as we open our Bibles to Titus chapter 2. As we open to Titus chapter 2 and look at verses 11 through 15, it seems that the Holy Spirit is giving to us here His heartbeat for our holy living. Here is a foundational passage to all who are concerned about matters of personal holiness. The Spirit of God wants our lives to be governed by, to be impacted by, to be fashioned by grace. Now, the old nature defines freedom as the absence of restraint. I'm free, I have no restraints, I can do whatever I want to do. But that's not what spiritual freedom is at all. Spiritual freedom is the ability to do what I'm designed to do by the grace of God. I want to say that again. Spiritual freedom is the ability to do what I'm designed to do by the grace of God. When a train gets off the track, you could say it's free. But off the track, 
its end will be destruction. Even so in our Christian lives, the Spirit of God has designed for us a track upon which we can accomplish the will of God. He gives to us that necessary instruction, those necessary promptings by grace to keep us moving on the straight path, going through the narrow way, accomplishing what God has called us to do. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11 declares that grace has appeared. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Now that's an interesting word, the word appeared. It's the Greek word epiphanao. We get our word epiphany. It's a word that's typically used to speak of a royal appearance, some big deal. Some person who's now come into our presence and there's an appearing that moves our emotions and even moves our will. And so he's saying the grace of God that bringeth salvation has made an epiphany. And he's bringing grace now into personal terms. Grace has appeared, this wonderful, marvelous appearing of the grace of God. And it's appeared for this reason, to teach us something. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, verse 12, teaching us. Now that's the Greek word pedeo. We get our word pedagogical or pedagogue to teach. So God's grace now has been personalized. It has appeared gloriously in the person of Jesus Christ for a purpose. And the purpose of God's grace is to teach us according to this passage. God's grace teaches us. Guthrie notes that grace forms the theological basis of all of our Christian living. And I want to put an emphasis on living. Grace forms the basis of all our Christian living. And grace wants to teach us, I believe in this passage, five very necessary lessons are discovered that grace wants to teach us. So follow along with me. This is a counter-cultural message. This is not a message that would flow typically from the evangelical sect who has a hard time speaking about worldliness or standards. And they don't speak about worldliness or standards while they hide behind a cover of grace. Grace, after all, covers everything, right? And so because I've known the grace of God, His compassion, giving to me the undeserved, therefore grace covers all and I can live as I please. Is that what grace teaches you? No. Titus chapter 2 tells us what grace teaches us. What does grace teach us? Well, it teaches us that there's something to avoid. Something to avoid. In verse 12, we're to avoid ungodliness and worldly lusts. Grace teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. People do not like dealing with the topic of sin. Sin is a topic that's seldom considered in so many pulpits. But here we realize that real grace teaches us to avoid sin. And two specific types of sin are spoken of in this text. There is sin related to God's person, and there's sin related to our passions. Let me explain. He says, grace teaches us there's something to avoid. We are to avoid sin that is related to God's person, ungodliness, ungodliness. 
Another Greek word. You're having a Greek lesson this morning. Asabia. It means lack of reverence. The grace of God that bringeth salvation that appeared to all men, it's our pedagogue. It teaches us to deny ungodliness, to deny a spirit that fails to show reverence for God. Grace teaches us not to live as if God is not watching. The book of Jude, the 18th verse, warns that ungodliness is characteristic of the last days. Jude 18 says, There will be mockers in the last times who walk after their own ungodly lust. There's that word again. Irreverent lust, living as if God is not watching. Where does this ungodliness come from? Well, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 16 says it comes from religious lies. Are you listening? 2 Timothy 1.16 says, Shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness, irreverence. Let me suggest this morning that we're living in an American culture that is increasingly impacted by irreverence. I had a fellow come to me a number of years ago, and he said, Pastor Phelps, do you think if we got a little bit more casual in our church services and didn't dress quite as formal, that perhaps we'd have more people from our community coming to church? That's a typical conversation that you'll have in pastoral ministry in these days, because after all, dressing down to come to church has become quite popular. And I said to the fellow, I said, well, you might have more people in your church, but that doesn't mean you're pleasing God. I said, let me just tell you something. I've been in 35, 40 countries. I said, in every one of those countries that I've gone to, I've found people coming to church dressed up. I've been in migrant farms in Mexico among people who have very little money and seen boys and girls coming to church in their Sunday best, shining for the Lord, if you will. I've been in far places in Africa, in Zimbabwe and Zambia, and gone to church service and seen people dressed up for the Lord. I've been in villages in Myanmar where they live in shanties and seen people who have washed their clothes and come dressed up for the Lord. A few years went by, and our church started a number of international ministries. Across the street we have in our old building the Gospel Baptist Church. It's an independent Baptist church with about 120 people from Burma or Myanmar. It's a wonderful thing to see these migrants who have come to Indianapolis gathering together and singing God's praises and uh, growing together in the Lord. Uh, these are humble people who uh, came out from Myanmar. And you know what Bible they use? It's fun to, to be over there and see what they're doing. They use the Bible that was translated by Adoniram Judson for the Burmese people in the early 1800s. When you go to their church service, you know what I find? They're not dressing down. When you go to their villages, I find they're not dressing down. We have a Congolese group in our church with about 50 to 60 Congolese people who are coming to our services. Every Sunday morning when I preach, I'm being translated into Swahili. And the Congolese people who come to our church services, some of the men wear clothing that I would put on the tuxedo class, if you know what I mean. Really sharp. The ladies wear beautiful colored African dress with headdresses that go with it and all match together. This same man came to me after the Lord started bringing internationals into our church. And he said, Pastor Phelps, I see what you mean. The internationals do come to church dressed up, don't they? I said, yes. They know something that people in America have forgotten and have been taught to forget. They know something of the reverence they want to give to God when we gather in His holy name. 
Take your Bibles for just a moment. Turn over to the the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. It's a passage that the Spirit of God has drawn me to often in recent years. Remember, the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us. What does it teach us? Well, it teaches us there's something to avoid, and that something is sin, and it starts by telling us sin that shows an irreverent spirit toward God. Hebrews chapter 12, look at verse 28. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. You see that word serve in verse 28? Another Greek lesson this morning. That word serve in verse 28 is the Greek word lutreo. It's typically translated worship. So I'm going to read it that way. This passage says, We receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may worship God acceptably. There's some worship of God that's acceptable. And there's some worship of God that's not acceptable. Worship of God that's acceptable is worship that demonstrates reverence and godly fear. Well, I thought that was the Old Testament. No, the New Testament says our God is a consuming fire, verse 29. Let me suggest to you that when Christians gather together in this dispensation in the place called the local church, it's the singular most important time for us collectively to show our reverence for God. It's a time when we ought to remember that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And let me suggest to you that we're seeing a culture growing up in evangelical churches today where they've never witnessed any reverence for God. They don't know the fear of the Lord, and so they're not going to come out with an outcome that demonstrates godly wisdom. So to be able to share with you today what real grace teaches, we start by saying real grace teaches there's something to avoid. And the something to avoid is sin, and specifically the sin that demonstrates itself against a reverent spirit toward the person of God. Now this passage goes on. If you turn back to Titus, Titus chapter 2, this passage goes on to say something more. It says we're to live in a world denying ungodliness, verse 12, and worldly lust. Those are sins that are related to our passions. Worldly lust. That speaks of sin that has not yet been committed, but it's sin that is longed for. The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 22 that we're to avoid youthful lust. 1 Peter 2 and verse 11 says we're to avoid fleshly lust. Listen, real grace wants us to turn away from the world and turn away from its lust and walk in the Spirit, Galatians 5, 16, so that you don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. So let me put it this way. Does grace teach us to go to church dressing casually, singing contemporarily, to leave church living a life of liberty, imbibing ourselves with the lust that we see on the screen, reading things that ought not to be read, having conversations filled with innuendo, satisfying the lustful desires of our heart and simply saying, well, hey, It's grace. That is not what grace teaches. The grace of God that brings salvation teaches us to deny ungodliness, sins of irreverence toward the person of God and personal lust. God's grace teaches us that. 
Folks, you're going to go out into a world of evangelicals and Christians today that are deluded and confused, who think that real grace is just everybody getting along and enjoying our liberties together. No, real grace teaches us there's something to avoid, and real grace teaches us there's something to add. This passage continues in verse 12. It says, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. In other words, grace wants us to have a right mind. We live soberly, sophronos. We get our word sophomore. It's speaking about the mind. You know that the word sophomore, you're familiar, sophos is wisdom, moros is moronic. And so sophomore means wise fool. Congratulations. But this word, speaking of sophronos, means to have a right mind, to have and enjoy spiritual sanity. And it's a word that Titus uses often. He uses it back in chapter 1 and verse 8. A lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober. There's the word again. In your right spiritual mind. Chapter 2 and verse 2, that the aged men be sober in their right spiritual mind. Chapter 2 and verse 4, that they may teach young men to be, or young women rather, to be sober in their right spiritual mind. Even music directors and ambassador who are looking forward to a Friday night concert are called to be in their right spiritual mind, okay? We're to have a right-mindedness about us. My dad, when he was about five years old living in Kentucky, went out in the country one day with his father, and while they were standing there, there was a man who people were trying to hold back. My dad always wondered if the man was demon-possessed. He definitely was afflicted. The man had been trying to harm himself, and the man got loose from the fellows that were holding him back, and he ran headlong toward a barn, dropped his head, and ran into that barn full throttle and knocked himself out. That's a man who doesn't have the right mind. Today, there are Christians who spiritually are running headlong into what God warns us will hurt their souls. And they're trying to wrap themselves in logical reasoning for doing it. One in nine people who drink alcohol will become alcoholic. Did you know that? One in nine. Some people say it's as low as one in eight. Nobody volunteers for that. Nobody says, you know what? I'd like to be when I grow up. I'd like to be an alcoholic. Nobody does that. But there are Christians today who are trying to weave logical reasoning into saying, it's okay. Wait a minute. That's not right-mindedness spiritually. The Spirit of God tells us all things may be lawful for us, but I'll not be brought into the power of any. All things are lawful for us, but all things don't edify. Spiritual reasoning is countercultural today. This passage says real grace will teach you to be in a right mind. And real grace will teach you to live with the right manner, righteously. Every Christian is called to live a life of good works. Titus chapter 3 and verse 8, this is a faithful saying. And these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. <clears throat> Every Christian is called to that. A right mind, a right manner, with a right motive, soberly, righteously, and godly. The Lord, after all, according to Matthew 10 and verse 16, has sent us out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And the nature of sheep and the nature of wolves differs. Wolves and sheep have a different nature. Wolves and sheep have different appetites. Wolves and sheep have a different appearance. Here's a challenge. 
Today, we live in a culture of Christianity in America where sheep want to dress in wolves' clothing. We can't serve the Lord while dressing in wolves' clothing. Sheep have a different nature, a different appetite, a different appearance. So how do we add something of value by the grace of God? Well, we have a right mind. We're living soberly. We have a right manner. We're living righteously. We have a right motive. We want God to be be pleased. Here, listen. Grace affects everything about me. Grace affects my attitude. That's my mind. It affects my actions. That's my manner. And grace affects even my aspirations. Because if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away and all things become new. Christians ought to be counseled to beware of the wolves, not to be like the wolves. Grace affects everything. When I first got married, we lived in what we affectionately called the little house on the parking lot. It was a little house. I mean, really little. I don't know what the floor plan of that house was, but it might have been 20 feet by 20 feet, maybe 400, 450 square feet. The great advantage of living in that house, the church there said, you can live here rent-free while you're in seminary. Wow, that's great. Just pay the utilities. We live in that little house on the parking lot. You know what you learn when you live right next door to the church? Everybody needs a key sometime. People come over knocking on the door. Hey, can I borrow the key? Hey, Chuck, can I get the key? People come over all the time. And we were living in Minnesota, and people in Minnesota like to play floor hockey. I'd never known about floor hockey. I will say that when I moved to Colorado, I brought floor hockey with me and had a youth activity, a floor hockey youth activity. Kids really liked it. In fact, we had the biggest crowd I'd ever had for a youth activity because the secretary of the church wasn't familiar with floor hockey, and she typed an an announcement into the church bulletin and said that I was hosting a junior high floor hickey activity. I mean, everybody came to that activity. Floor hockey, different from floor hickey, just so you're aware. Okay, floor hockey. I had a floor hockey activity. Somebody came to the door, knocked on the door one evening after we'd just been married, lived there in the little house for a little while. And the person said, hey, Chuck, we're playing floor hockey over at the church basement. You want to come play? I loved by that time floor hockey. It's a lot of fun. So I said, sure, I'd like to come play. And I turned around. I went to get dressed to go play floor hockey. And my wife said to me, are you going to go play floor hockey tonight? I said, yeah. You're having a hard time hearing me tell this now, aren't you? I can tell. I said, yeah, I'm going to go over and play with the guys. She said, with tears in her eyes, she said, oh, I thought you'd stay home this evening. I said, well, yeah, newlywed. I'm, I'm learning to be sensitive, right? I said, well, it's just... I'm just going to be next door. She said, yeah, but we haven't had an evening together for a while. I'm like, this is bad. (laughs) I'm kind of blowing it here. I already told the guys I'm going to come play. She said, are you really going to go? Tears in her eyes. I said, listen, I'll go over for one hour, and I'll be be back, I promise, in one hour. Sure enough, I went over, and we got involved in a game, and it was, I mean, it was going. It's four on four. Only eight guys there playing. It's a tie game, and I looked at my watch, and it had been an hour. You know what I did? I went over to the guys. I said, guys, I'm sorry. I've got to quit. I've got to go back. And they said, why? I said, well, I promised my wife. Oh, you promised your wife. <laughs> I said, yeah, I promised my wife I'd come home in an hour. You know what I did? I went home. That was a good decision. 
I don't remember the name of the other seven guys I played floor hockey with that many years ago, but I'm sure happy that I made my wife happy. I learned something along the way. I learned that my relationship with my wife changed things about me. And our relationship with the Lord brings to us this wonderful spirit-given teacher who graces us, who graces us to teach us that there's something to avoid, ungodliness and worldly lust, who graces us to teach us that there's something to add. We're to live soberly in our right mind, righteously in a right manner, avoiding worldly lust. We're to be living with a right motive toward God after all because there's something to anticipate. Here's the third lesson that grace teaches. Every Christian taught by grace is to be looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Looking for means readily welcoming. Grace wants us to anticipate something. Grace wants us to anticipate the coming of the one who is equal with the Father. Those who study Greek grammar will come to encounter something called the Granville Sharp Rule. And the Granville Sharp Rule goes something like this. When you have a definite article followed by two nouns that are drawn together by a conjunction. It's really not that complicated. It starts with a definite article, the, and then you have two nouns tied together by a conjunction, and, then the two nouns are equal. And so we discover the equality of God as it's revealed in this passage, looking for, it says, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of whom? Of our great God, and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Those two nouns, personal pronouns, are equal. God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ are demonstrated to be equal, and we're looking forward then to the coming of the one who is equal with God, but made himself man so that we could see the grace of God. He came and dwelt among us so that we could behold God's grace and the apostle would, be, would say, we beheld his glory, full of grace and truth. We look forward to his coming. We anticipate something. We anticipate his appearance as the great emperor that he is. Again, the passage says, the glorious appearing. And there's that word again, the epiphanao, that spectacle that's referenced when an emperor would enter into a place and people would fall down and worship the emperor. I was in Aramisio, Mexico a number of years ago, and the place was beautiful. And I inquired of my missionary friend, why was the city so beautiful and things in such good order? And he explained that the president of Mexico was going to be coming to Aramisio soon, and they wanted the place to look just so for the president's arrival. I was in Hyderabad, India a number of years ago, and I saw the same thing. Everything in the city, garland up, everything was spotless, and I asked why, and the answer, President George W. Bush was coming to Hyderabad, India, and they wanted everything to be just so. Even so, this passage is making the same picture. Do you know that God's returning, Jesus Christ? And it's going to be a great appearing. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man who has this hope in him lives like he's not coming, looks like a wolf, 
in the world? No. Everyone that has this hope in him purifies himself. We're living in a generation, and I've watched it happen, where the, the word gospel has become very popular. And the word gospel is a grand and a great word. And a focus on the cross has become essential, even more essential. But we've moved away from looking toward the coming of Christ to looking at the gospel and the cross. And we need to look at both. Because when we look at the coming of the Christ, 1 John chapter 2 says, when we look forward to His coming, our appearance changes. We purify ourselves even as He is pure. H.A. Ironside said, it's one thing to hold to the doctrine of the Lord's return. It's quite another to be held by it. We hear less and less preaching on the coming of Christ. Fewer and fewer people who are able even to enunciate the doctrines of eschatology. I've gone to ordinations where young men who have graduated from seminary will actually say, I don't know much about eschatology. Well, shame on you! As if that's okay. And we wonder why the church becomes increasingly worldly. Well, grace teaches us to look forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in looking forward to His coming... Our lives change. And if we're going to change a Cretan culture from Paradise Island to Pure Island to the place where the Lord will be welcomed, we ourselves need to be changed. There's two more things that grace wants to teach us. Grace wants to teach us there's something to appreciate. We serve the one who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity, not just leave us alone, not allow us to wallow in our sin, but redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. And it's true, some are more peculiar than others. But we're all to be a peculiar people. Our Savior's sacrifice is what we're to appreciate. It was a personal sacrifice. He gave himself. It was a purchasing sacrifice. He gave himself to redeem us. And it's a purifying sacrifice to purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Listen, not zealous of fitting in. Not zealous of making the community feel comfortable when they gather with God's people. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 tells us that when the community gathers with God's people, they ought to give witness that God is there as they see the preaching of God's word making a difference in the people of God. There's something to appreciate the personal sacrifice He gave Himself to purchase us, to redeem us, and purify us unto Himself. I heard the story of a girl who went to the bridal shop to buy her dress. And she said to the lady who was running the bridal shop, I want a really loud one. The lady had never had that request before, and so she said to the young bride-to-be, why in the world do you want a loud dress? What do you mean by that? And the girl said, I want one that makes a lot of noise. And the lady running the shop said, why would you buy a, a dress that makes a lot of noise? And the gal said, I'm marrying a man who is blind, and I want him to hear every step. Are you living in light of Christ's coming? Living to please him means thinking about how you will appear when you as the bride are caught up to be with Him in glory. Does that impact your life? Years ago, I said to a lady who was cleaning our church, wow, you look awfully nice today, Wendy. 
to be cleaning the church after all. And this is what she said. She said, well, Pastor Phelps, I was thinking when I got up this morning, wouldn't it be a great day for Jesus to come back? And if Jesus came back, you know, I don't want to be dressed nice. His coming will affect our appearance. His coming will affect our attitude. And His coming needs to affect our actions. How do I know? Grace teaches me that. And there's one more lesson grace teaches. There's something that we need to accomplish. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. You know what the word despise literally means? It's a composite Greek word. It comes from the word peri, which means around. We get our word periscope. And phroni, or phroni, which means to think. Let no man despise thee literally translates this way. Don't let anybody think around you. Don't let anybody twist their arguments, even if they seem to be based on Scripture, to pull you away from the simplicity of what grace wants to teach you. Wow. These things, he says, we are to speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority, letting no one reason their way around us. What do we learn from grace? We learn to avoid sin, deny ungodliness and worldly lust. We need to add sanctification, living soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. We need to anticipate the coming of the Savior, looking for that blessed hope. We need to appreciate His sacrifice. He gave Himself for us, and we need to accomplish the struggle that He's given to us. So let me ask some questions based on what real grace teaches. Should I or should I not go to that R-rated movie? Should I or should I not pick up that beer and carouse with my buddies? Should I or should I not think before I enter into the house of God with God's people to worship a a thrice holy God? Should I or should I not be considering what I'm watching when I turn on the TV in in the evening? Should I or should I not be thinking about what I'm reading when I have some private time alone? Real grace teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. Don't let anyone reason around you and say, I live this way because we're in the age of grace. The age of grace doesn't teach us to live like libertines. That's what the Cretans were already doing. Real grace teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust and live soberly, righteously, godly in this present age, looking for and hastening unto the glorious appearing of the great God and Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Father, we thank you for the grace of God. And we pray, Lord, that you'd find us by your grace, living for your glory, making a difference in this present age. Oh, Lord, we pray with the Apostle John of old, even so come Lord Jesus. And Lord, may you give conviction to the hearts of this student body that these who no doubt will be entering into conversations on themes that have been alluded to today will find themselves strong to be able to go to a passage and say, that's really not what grace teaches. May they be able to enunciate what grace teaches in a way that can change others so that we can see a cultural change, even our own island of Crete. And we'll thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen.